Welcome to SCG Church's podcast. We hope you enjoyed this message. And remember, you can always join us live online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages. We also have live outdoor services underneath our tent at Saturdays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at 9 a.m. Thanks so much for listening. Good morning. How you doing? You good? Everybody good? Good to see you. Glad you're here. Yeah, so exciting. I'm seeing uh, people every week that haven't been able to attend and now are coming in person every, every week, new people coming back. So excited about it. Get involved. Don't just be here. And uh, yeah, get involved and join a, join a group, volunteer, do something. And uh, yeah, we're so glad you're here. We've been looking at the book of Acts and kind of working our way, not maybe uh, systematically through it, but just kind of through it as we see things that we want to talk about. And, and today I want to talk about Acts chapter 19. And uh, I'll just get kind of right to it. In Acts chapter 19, uh, I just want to, I believe that Scripture is given to us both as a, an accurate historical account. So I believe that what is described in, in Scripture actually happened. Uh, but I don't believe it's just given to us for Scripture. I think we're supposed to learn things from it. We're supposed to look at it. Even just what seems to be fairly just historical information is informative if we'll kind of search it a little bit and look through it. So today I want to, uh, from a section in uh, Acts 19, verses 23 through 41, I want to do a talk on three observations, three rebu- rebukes, and some learnings. So three observations, three rebukes, and some learnings. Um, so now, in this passage, what's happening is Paul has been in Ephesus, and in Ephesus, uh, he's been telling people about Jesus. And uh, this becomes a problem because many of them begin to follow, and Ephesus, much of the economy was centered around uh, the worship of Artemis, the god Artemis, and they had a huge temple. It was 60 feet tall. I think it was 100 feet long. I can't remember the exact dimensions, but the ruins are still there. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and, and people made a lot of money off this deal. People would travel from far to come ask this goddess to do uh, whatever it was, and um, they made money. And at one point, so many people were converting to Christianity and away from idols that it was actually hurting the business of the idol makers. Uh, and so there was a guy named Demetrius who was a silversmith who had made little, little idols of this goddess and uh, sold them. And, uh, and, and, and if you've ever been, I don't know, like India uh, or certain parts of the world where there are temples, you will know that there's a little uh, economic situation around them where they sell you things. Uh, they kind of, that's how they make their living. Well, this economic situation was uh, a significant driver in the economy of Ephesus at this point, and it was diminishing. And so Demetrius took it upon himself to organize all the other tradespeople who were in related businesses and to um, go after the Christians. They were going to string up a few of them, I think, and uh, cause a riot. And in this riot, they kind of let them out to a stadium. And, and don't think this size, think big, much, much bigger. Uh, outdoor stadium in which they accused them of things and it kind of began to get out of control and they grabbed a couple of, of uh, Paul's uh, companions and hauled them with them. And so out of this, out of this story, I want to make some observations. And they're not going to be particularly profound initially, but I hope they will be instructive. Uh, the first observation is that people get mad. People get angry. It happens. You've seen angry people before, right? It happens. And I want to look at anger for a moment because I I just want to acknowledge right off the bat, not all anger is bad. Most anger is bad, though. If we look at it honestly, we look at what it's really about. But the Bible says it's okay to be angry, but make sure you're angry for a righteous reason because someone is treated unjustly, uh, not because you got offended or you got your feelings hurt. 
all right? And so anger uh, can be a very uh, bad uh, thing in our lives if we don't understand it, deal with it appropriately. Uh, uh, yeah, so uh, let me read this passage. It's in Acts 19, 28 through 31. When they heard this about what was happening, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Actually, they're, they're referring to a guy who stood up and he was Jewish. Uh, soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people, oh no, yeah, it was. It was about the thing, first of all. Sorry, I'm having an inner monologue. I decided to outside. Out loud. The people seized Gaius and Aristarch. Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. So here's an interesting thing. Uh, People don't always know why they're angry. Everybody gets angry. People don't always know where it comes from. Sometimes I just want to think maybe that anger is in the air. I've been thinking about that a lot in the past few months, that sometimes anger is just in the air. And so I did a little research. This is from NPR. Anger. Uh, one in ten say they have trouble controlling their anger. Uh, those are the ones uh, driving on the road with all the smashes on their car. Uh, you'll recognize them. Uh, one in four say they worry about their anger and how, how, strong, how, how strong that emotion can be in their lives. One in five have ended a relationship because of the other person's anger issues. 84% of Americans said we're angrier now than we were a generation ago. 84%. 42% say they themselves are angrier than they've ever been before uh, and, and even compared to a year ago. Um, uh, the anger uh, comes from all kinds of places, but one of the places cited, it says that 29% of the people say, said that they often feel angry after watching the news, 29%. 42% said that sometimes they feel angry after watching the news, which is interesting. That comes out to 71%. So I'm assuming the other uh, uh, 29% are probably people who get angry every time they watch the news, so it begs the question, why are we exactly? 90% uh, said people are much more likely to express anger on social media. Down in your mom's basement, I know. Um, in NPR, it finishes with this quote, there is no question that we are in angry times. It is contagious. It is caught in real-life social networks. Now, what's interesting about that, there's probably nothing in there that surprised you, but what I found is interesting, and I didn't see it till the end of the article, it was written in 2018. Imagine what the numbers are now. I did find a couple of more recent quotes from psychologists who study anger, and, uh, and they said, we're living in a big anger incubator. Another one said that three disasters superimposed on top of each other, pandemic, economic um, fallout, and civil unrest, have combined to make this happen. Uh, and that domestic violence is up. Uh, the, the numbers aren't in on the number of incidences fully yet, but it's obviously up. Children have been exposed to so much more anger. And then it's one of the uh, psychologists um, observed this. America's threat perception, in other words, how much we feel threatened, might be off kilter right now. In other words, we feel it's a lot more unsafe than it actually is, which I think relates back to the media thing, right? And so we see, and I believe, that we are living in an angry society. 
I believe that media is out to make us angry. I believe social media and the internet is out to make us angry, to get more clicks. And I believe that we need to be very careful, and, and I'm talking about me, uh, maybe even more than you, be very careful about anger and what we do with it. And there are times to be angry, and there are times not to be angry. There are ways to express anger and ways not to express anger. Sometimes we don't even know where it comes from, it's just in the air. Sometimes we think that anger is inherited. Have you ever heard of a certain ethnic group referred to, oh, those are hot-tempered people? No? Any redheads in the room? Okay. You're mad about it too, huh? It's not genetic. It is cultural. Maybe you were raised in a household where there was a lot of yelling and screaming and anger was normal. Don't marry someone who came from a very pacifist family. It's not going to work out. I remember I was, in, I was in Rome and we were at the Vatican and we caught a cab and, and, and the, the cab driver started to pull out. Another guy cut him off and they were, and all kinds of signals I didn't understand, but I got the gist of. And, yelling, and then all I know before I go, eh, ciao, ciao. <laughs> what just happened here? I thought you guys were going to fight. I mean, I really, I thought they were going to get out and throw down. They were yelling and screaming it was cultural. Some of us, it's okay to really be angry all the time. That's how our, that's how our life is. That's how our culture works. doesn't mean it's right. Uh, sometimes we do kind of, maybe not inherit it, but it is instilled in us from the dysfunction of our family of origins. And anger is either completely avoided at all costs or too easily embraced in wrong ways. So people don't always know where it comes from. People don't always understand what it's really about. One of the things about anger is that we, I've noticed in the last year and a half or so, is that anger is easier than uncertainty. Anger is easier than uncertainty. If I don't know what's going to happen and I don't know when they're going to kind of let me go out of my house, and I, 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 it's much easier for me to get angry because it makes a concrete kind of thinking pattern. I can be angry and I can find someone to point my anger at. It's so much harder for me to just live in uncertainty and deal with the fact that I'm not in control and not sure anybody is. We're just going to have to wait and see what happens. It's much easier to get angry and find someone to blame it on. I also have noticed that it is more manly than fear. So we think. I'm I'm good at anger. Anger is one of my best ones, by the way. I just need to tell you that. I'm really good. You will hear me say I'm angry. You'll probably rarely hear me say I'm afraid because it's not very manly. Or at least that's how we come to think about it. But the truth is that anger is usually just fear that's too afraid to speak up. See, we get angry. The people were angered there, not the crowds. The crowds didn't know what they're doing. We'll talk about that in a moment. But the initiators were angry because they were afraid that their livelihood was going to be taken away. And so instead of acknowledging they were afraid, they just got angry. And there are times to be angry. If somebody's going to take away the, the life and well-being of one of my grandkids, I'm going to be angry. I'm going to be angry in a way you've probably never seen anger before from me. <laughs> Sometimes it's okay, but oftentimes it is not. It is covering up something much deeper. That brings us to anger is easier than introspection. Sometimes when we are confronted with a different opinion or a different way of thinking or a, a different way to look at things, it is too scary to actually look, much less look inside of us. What if I look inside and don't find anything good? What if I'm not good like I've been pretending? What if I don't really have hope? I'm just whistling in the dark. What if there's no real meaning and purpose in my life? What if there is no redemption? We're afraid to look at those things and we will get mad at anybody who suggests we take a look inside. 
Oftentimes, that's where I see fear acting out as anger. So people don't really know why they're angry oftentimes, and people don't realize how easily they can be manipulated into anger. Again, especially political commentators, it's their job to make us angry, so it seems these days, even the news itself. It may not be our anger, it may be somebody else's anger and their agenda, and we're not even aware that we've been sucked into it and are being used. It may actually be nothing more than for our life and our agenda and our purposes, a distraction. And we find ourselves, instead of going from glory to glory, going from anger to anger. What new thing are they going to find, me, find for me today to be angry about that I can't fix and have nothing to do with? So we need to look at anger and anger, the level angers in our life. This week I was um, angry. I was angry at a perceived injustice that affects me and our church and not a blooming thing I could do about it. I didn't do anything to cause it. Not a thing I could do to fix it, probably. And yet I was angry. And it was funny because I was having a conversation. And within two minutes of that conversation, a friend of mine, I ran into a friend of mine. And this friend of mine, I asked uh, their permission to tell you this, um, began to talk. I said, how are you doing? And they said, fine. I felt like maybe I should ask a little further. And so I, I, I probed a little further. And pretty soon there were tears and confession that my friend, who has been in recovery for many, many years, many years of sobriety, had relapsed. And to su such a degree that self-harm uh, seemed to be one of the thoughts. And in that moment, I, I did so inadequately <laughs> try to reassure and encourage and say, I'm here and I love you, and even threaten that I'd be mad if they did something, which is always helpful. Uh, and... As my friend drove away, I was heartbroken for the pain, the obvious pain that they were in. They were on their way to a meeting. I was really glad, really happy. But as I kind of processed through what they were going through, I kind of got a rebuke. And the rebuke, uh, it, and it was for me. It was directly for me who had been so angry two minutes earlier. And now I was heartbroken for my friend and the rebuke was something like this. There's too much at stake to be playing around with out-of-control emotions when only the real power of God can help. You see, I'm wasting my time being angry about something I can't fix and something I didn't cause when there are people who have real needs. People are trying to stay sober. People are trying to keep their life together. People are trying to have some kind of hope to go forward and face another day. And here I'm sitting around stewing in, in the juices of anger that, that aren't helping anyone and aren't being processed appropriately. Rebuke. Rebuke heard and rebuke accepted. You see, prolonged, unexamined, unchecked, unsubmitted anger is selfish and sinful and will stop you from doing God's will. Now remember, I'm talking to a nation who has a whole industry to keep us angry. I'm going to read it again in case it wasn't clear. Pro prolonged, unexamined, unchecked, unsubmitted anger is selfish and sinful and will stop you from doing God's will. If you've got anger stuff, here's my advice. Get your anger under control and do it before the sun goes down. Well, that's not my advice. That's the Bible. <laughs> anger is a problem. And in this nation where we are so easily fomented, I don't even know if that's a correct use of that word, we're so, so easily riled up. How about that? Anger is a problem and will continue to be so. As, and we as Christians dare not fall into that trap. Here's the learning. The learning from that is that we need 
Real power, not self-indulgent emotion, not empty rhetoric and hollow promises. 1 Corinthians 4.20, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. We need to be people who get quieter and more powerful as the days go by. We need to stop boasting and stop putting our chest out and stop pretending and stop fronting. We need to be people who know Jesus well enough that we bring to bear on situations the power of God and the power of the resurrection. That is the only hope for the world we live in and the society that is drifting. And so that's our learning. Then observation number two from this. Are you with me so far? You okay? Okay, good. It's going to get worse. (laughs) Observation number two, crowds are not always right. Duh. And let, let me just parenthetically add this. And in spiritual things, they're usually wrong. In things of eternal importance, they're rarely right in the culture we live in. Mom was right, just because everybody's doing it, it's not good reason for you to do it. If everybody was jumping off a cliff, you know the rest. It feels like a lot of people are jumping off a lot of cliffs these days. Uh, There's a thing called, and even a book called The Wisdom of Crowds. In 1907, Francis Galton took an ox to a country fair and put it on display and had people make guesses how much it weighed. When everything was done, there were some outrageous guesses, high and low, but the median guess came within 1% of the ox's actual weight, thus starting the whole concept that there is wisdom in crowds. You don't think that affects you? Do you have Yelp? By the way, which is skewed, I found out. It's not really what it pretends to be. I'm just saying. Another disappointment. Anyway... um, What is interesting, however, is there are some factors not taken into account. For example, it was a country fair. There were probably more than a few farmers who had bought and sold more than a few oxen, right? If that same thing had been done at Orange County Fair, (laughs) someone someone last night over here yelled out, what's an ox? (laughs) Exactly, exactly. We wouldn't have been within 1%. You see, there are certain parameters to that thing. And it's not unbiblical. Multiplicity of counsel brings wisdom. That's true. But don't ask your four-year-old what kind of car you should buy next. You need to ask wise people for wise counsel, right? So it's interesting. So this whole concept, the wisdom of crowds, is now being counteracted by some writings, especially among tech people and and even scientists now, called the ignorance of crowds. (laughs) The ignorance of crowds. What's interesting is this crowd is swept up into this anger. They end in, a, in, a, in the stadium. And, and it's, it's so interesting. In Acts 19, verse 32, it says this. And I just find this hilarious. It says, the assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. <laughs> Seen that lately anywhere? Everywhere? Crowds are often full of confusion. Don't get caught up in it. Crowds can get crazy when fueled by irrational emotion. They're called mobs. See, here's what happened. Even the city manager, they called the city clerk, or he is the one, the local kind of potentate or, or official who reported to the Romans. They were allowed to have great freedom and, and great opportunity under the Romans given certain guidelines. And so here's what happens in Acts 1940. We're in danger of being charged with rioting because of what has happening happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. Even he stood up and said, there's no reason for this. You're just an angry crowd, angry about you don't know what. Going to do you don't know what. 
And so oftentimes crowds can get crazy. And if you follow crazy crowds, you're going to end up with consequences. Crowd actions have consequences. The reason the city clerk stood up and quieted the crowd and dismissed them is because he didn't want to pay the consequences of what the Romans were going to do if they found out there was rioting in their city. Crowds have consequences. What's interesting in modern thought, crowd, the wisdom of crowds has become questionable. And the ignorance of crowd is actually being talked about a lot more. And it's coming from an interesting quarter of our society, and it is scientists. Scientists who are studying the impact of social media in terms of our collective behavior. They're beginning to realize that if the crowd, whoever it might be anonymously in their mother's basement, can affect political elections or drive up some silly stock to outrageous prices... What could they do if it all goes wrong? What could happen if the crowd takes a wrong direction? And these people are not worried about the spiritual impact. They're worried about the economic impact globally. They're worried about the environment. They are worried about the political systems. And they're writing that the ignorance of crowds could be the end of us. As a matter of fact, they're writing about things like global collapse. They're worried about things like, well, big tech's algorithms, which you're intended to produce more profit, lead to some catastrophic overusage or misappropriation of resources and ruin the environment or just outrageous propagation of falsehoods that lead to destructive policies. They don't believe in the wisdom of crowds and neither should we. We should believe in the wisdom of God and we should communicate with God's people to understand it better. But this is where truth comes from, not by some vote taken online. And so we need to be careful. So here's a re rebuke number two. Rebuke number two is, don't take your cues from the crowd around, but from Christ within. Don't take your cues from the crowd around, but from Christ within. Remember, these rebukes are not for you. These were my rebukes this week. And the lesson was, stop living in the myopic reaction of the crowd or to the crowd and see that God is up to something and get in line with his plan. Last week, I got a, a few weeks ago, I got a, I got a text from, a, or an email rather, from one of the pastors in Uganda. And he's Richard, you, you may have met Mugambe, and you may have met him, he's a PhD, a couple of masters, very bright guy, uh, involved in the health services um, for the, the country of Uganda, but also a pastor, as is his dad. And so he had asked how we were and how Mama Connie was doing, and, and so I, I wrote back, and we're good, and I began to tell him about, because he asked about the church, we began to tell him about how, it, how it's going, we're, we're moving back inside and, and the attendance isn't quite back yet and, and volunteerism is pretty slow to recover and, and I was just peer to peer, you know, kind of a professional kind of conversation about how ministry is going in the U.S., how ministry is going there and, and, and he's a friend and so I just was including him. He's a young man, but I was, I was including him, just kind of tell him how it was going. I got back an email from him to, and did the same and I, oh, I was so glad my wife and I are fine. He kind of catch up a little bit and, and the churches are this, that, and about, about four sentences into it, about halfway through the second paragraph, all of a sudden I got this sinking feeling like, oh my goodness. He said, yes, yes, we're struggling in, in some of the same ways you are. But then I began to realize that I had been caught up in the crowd crisis of my, loca my locale and its accompanying issues, assertions, and blaming, and had forgotten the bigger picture of suffering, pain, and struggle globally. He identified with some of our struggles, but the severity and the immediacy of the consequence that is in his context were not just inconveniences, but things like joblessness. 
economically forced dislocations of masses of people. Thousands of people have had to leave the cities and where they had a job before, where there's no more job because it's shut down. There's no food coming in because the trucks aren't running. They've had to go back to villages, which means back to mud huts, trying to do a subsistence living from the bush or from a little garden. It is a big deal and outright starvation for many. And the sentence that got me was, we are trying to help as many as we can, but we are running out of resources and many are starving. He wasn't asking for money. He wasn't trying to blame me. He was giving a report how ministry was going there. And I felt so convicted that I had been caught up in the crowd crisis, the current crowd crisis in my locale that I had forgotten there are children of God who are struggling. By the way, this wasn't a fundraising deal, but I'm going to send a check. If, if you'd like to do that, just write it to Seacoast, put Uganda on it. 100% will be sent to him and his congregation. 100% will be used for food for starving people. You want to do that, you could do it online. You could write a check and drop it in the box. If you want to help out, that would be great. Um, here is my response to the struggle these churches are having, trying to help as many as they can until their meager resources are exhausted. I haven't seen any crowds gathering around to solve this problem. This may not be a first world problem, but it is a problem of the first order. I can't control the economy, the global economy, or heal political divide, but I can feed a family that is starving, and I won't even have to get in line to do it. I can give a cup of cold water and a bag of beans and rice in Jesus' name, and I don't have to doubt if I'm being manipulated or used. I can help and not even need to take pics to put on my social media. I can just be like Jesus, whether anybody sees it or not. We need to realize there are greater things that we're to be about. We need to seek God for discernment so that we know what to address and how to address it, how to use the resources and opportunities we've been given. So here's the learning from that rebuke. God is always up to something, and I need to be about that thing. Crowds often miss God's voice. It's easy to get lost in a crowd, but Jesus sees you like the woman with the issue of blood that touched the hem of his garment. He knows you even in a crowd. We sometimes lose his voice. We lose sight of him in a crowd, but he never loses us. We need to pray for guidance, discernment, humility, and the power of Jesus. I saw a a tagline in a newspaper from the East Coast this week, and I misread it at first. It says, unprecedented times call for unlimited access. I thought it said success at first. I was like, that's weird. But as I read it again, I thought, that's not necessarily true of what you're talking about, but it is true. Unprecedented times call for unlimited access. See, I don't need more access to a particular crowd's voice, a particular crowd's opinion, or whatever it is they're trying to sell. I need unlimited access to the voice of Jesus to lead, to guide, to provide, to redeem whatever it is that I'm dealing with, whoever it is I'm called to help. I do need unlimited access. And in a time when we all feel so powerless about so much in our world, we are connected to the greatest power source there ever was and ever will be. It is time that we turned on that switch and began to use, be used by God to be light in an ever-darkening world. And I don't say that just rhetorically. I truly believe that. And I truly believe that Jesus is the only hope for what we're looking at in our world, whether it's starving people, physically starving in Africa or spiritually starving in America. Observation number three, things are rarely as they seem at first glance. 
The subtitle on this one is Test the Spirits and Follow the Benjamins. You're familiar with that reference? Okay. Thought it was a little more shocking than you did. Worked hard on that one. Here are my assertions. Motives, like religions, are rarely pure. Motives, like religions, are rarely pure. See, Demetrius' God was the denarii. The denarii was the Greek word for denaro, dollar. You see, he wasn't worried about the worship of the goddess. He was worried about his income. 19 and verse 24 and 5, a silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers and related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. He wasn't worried about the worship of the goddess. He was worried about his income because his God was his income. His hope in life was that he would make enough money. Demetrius' true religion was business, was his business. The entire economy of the city was affected by the temple and dedicated to Artemis. He, he was selling something in this case to protect his income. It was violence. He was initiating violence to protect his income. You make applications wherever you want. I'm just saying we will do a lot of things to protect the, that that we love most. And it wasn't the goddess. Let me just give you some thoughts here. These sound really cynical. You judge. Remember, you're always selling or being sold something. It's said in the, in, in, if we, the, today in the internet age that if you, you can't figure out what's being sold, it's you and your data. Remember, always selling or being sold something. Be careful about who is selling you what. Let me say this. Few have altruistic motives. Among those few who have altru- altruistic motives, most of them are selling something that's just flat out wrong, even if they have good intentions. It's wrong. It's untrue. It's heretical. Even those who are speaking truth, almost none of them are practicing what they preach very well. Just be aware of that. Be careful what you are buying into. And yes, that includes what I'm selling you. I'm trying to tell you about the gospel, but don't take my word for it. You need to move from being a consumer, from buying or receiving information, to being a believer where you know God's word for yourself. So that when you're in a situation, you don't think, what would Doyle do? It's what God have me do. When you go home from a Sunday morning, if something I said tweak you, don't get mad about it. Find out if it's true. And if it's not true, confront me. And if it is true, confront yourself. Truth is, we need to be believers in God's words because in a world where I doubt most of what I'm being told almost everywhere these days, I know it's terrible, isn't it? And yet, I know where truth is found. And I know what I can depend on. And if the whole world lies to me, I know he's telling me the truth. I need to be a believer. God alone is dealing with you from a place of purity, not profiting off of you, needing nothing from you, wanting only what is best for you. You can trust his motives, his intention, and his information. The hardest thing about being a Christian is trusting God's information, believing that somehow we know better or the crowd knows better about our behavior, about our sexuality, about our love life. But I am telling you, this is the one that you can trust. Artemis, it's interesting that God Artemis is, <laughs> is the right idea, but the wrong deity. I found out that many of the ancient world um, idols were built around meteors. Did you know that? Oftentimes, the mythology that goes with it is that this, this God came from the sky to earth. And based on the shape of the meteor, they would build a God around it. 
the conjecture is that maybe that was true in this case. And what this particular image was, uh, was uh, a physical representation of a symbolic idea and symbolic of an idea. And this God, Artemis, was a multi-breasted goddess. You're saying, well, what are you bringing that up for? Because in that, there is this idea that we all have and we all need and we're all searching for. That is to find the all-powerful one, the kind of being that is nurturing and providing and caring and loving. And the problem is it is not found in a meteor. It is not found in an idol. It is not found in a government or a political ideology. It is found in the one who put it inside of you, that desire to know your creator, your provider, your sustainer. There is a desire to know God. And without knowing the true God, you will never ever fill that place in your life. The desire is right. It was just the wrong place to worship. It's only found in God. So the third rebuke, and I'll share this quickly, is don't get so distracted by the bad news that you forget to share the good news. Don't be shocked. When, so I met with a friend of mine this week. His name is Tim. Tim is a pastor, started his church by the time we started. I uh, recently handed it off to a younger leader and is now helping church planters, young, young couples, men and women start churches. And, and I was kind of talking to him about the world we're living in and what the future might look like for the church. And he said, don't be shocked when lost people play power games, promote hopeless, false ideologies, and mistreat others. They don't have the Holy Spirit to guide and empower them. And it was one of those moments where, yeah, I know. Uh, yeah, I know. I, I knew this. Thanks for reminding me. But then he went on and he said, I, I said, the young church planner is struggling with all this. He said, he said this. They don't have the luxury of sitting around contemplating global issue. They're too busy trying to reach one more person, one more family, one more neighborhood with the good news of what Jesus has done. That was a great reminder. I can't just look at all the negatives. I need to bring some light into this situation. I need to be who God has called me to be. Um, this week, I, I declared, uh, I declared uh, Thursday a nope day. Nope. N-O-P-E. Nope. And I came and I did staff devotion. I shared some of the stuff with them that I was, had been thinking about. And, uh, and I thought about wearing a sign. just said, nope. And, and because I wanted during that day that anybody who was going to try to give me bad news, nope. They wanted to tell me some problems that need to be fixed. Nope. They wanted to set the agenda for my day and my thought patterns of what I was going to worry about. Nope. Not today. So I declared to our whole staff, I, I declared this Thursday, Thanksgiving Thursday. I know there's another Thanksgiving Thursday in November, but we decided, no, I decided and declared, because I am the grand poobah <laughs> around here, <clears throat> that um, we were going to have a Thanksgiving Thursday. And unless you are bleeding out, do not call me <laughs> with your crisis, emergency, or opinion, because this is Thanksgiving Thursday. I think at some point we've got to stop. We see the condition of the world. We see what's happening. I don't need more details. What I need is solutions. I need to seek God. I need to seek his power. I need to be a conduit, an instrument of healing and hope and change. I don't need more data about how bad it is. It's bad. But I know a good God. And I need to be in his service. Truth is, we need to have nope days. I'm not buying the popular narrative the crowd is espousing. I'm going to spend the day thanking God. I'm no longer going to live under the circumstances, but in victory that Jesus paid for. You see, the truth is our only hope is in Jesus.
<clears throat> I'm going to invite the band and singers to come back. I wanted to close today. It's so interesting as you, as you grow older and have been in faith longer, old cliches, old sayings, old scriptures even take on fresh and new meaning as you realize more and more that the only hope of the world is Jesus. And I don't say that as a cliche. I first heard it, I think, sang in a song back in the 70s. And uh, I think it was the answer for the world today. <laughs> it was the song by Andre Crouch. But as I have come to see the world, uh, I think more clearly and see how false some of the hopes are and how uh, much they lack power, I am fully convinced that there has to be a God and that has to be the answer. Otherwise, there is no hope. And in my relationship with God, I've come to find out that he is real and that he is there and he is available if I will depend on him more. And so today, I, I was working with Amy and I wanted to do this song, not the whole song. It's like a two and a half day, it was like forever song. Uh, I said, I want to do this piece of this song and we were working on it together. And I, I wanted to lead into this song. And so I began to write. And so she agreed she would do the music part and they'd figure it out. And, and I wanted to write a conclusion of the sermon that would lead us into this. As I began to write the conclusion of the sermon, I found a couple of interesting things happen. One is it turned into a prayer that God would bring this stuff into reality in our lives. And then it began to kind of rhyme. And I apologize for that in advance. And, and yet it Sometimes I think God gets a kick out of us using the gifts he's given us. And one of mine is, I think, creativity. Or at least chutzpah. If you don't know what that is, look it up. And so this is kind of a prayer. And it's called, that I wrote, What We Really Need. What we really need, God, is not some lesser imitation, not someone else's version, not a diluted, watered-down, sanitized, anemic representation. No, we need the God that made all creation. We need the one true God who is full of power and grace, who deserves all honor and glory and praise, the one who created the heavens and the earth, who sees in every man, woman, and child their intrinsic worth, who knit us together before our birth, the God who holds the fate of kings and kingdoms, the only one who could pay the ransom so that we could be forgiven and then some, the one who had his son come and now it's all done. The God who promised his Holy Spirit so we could face forward and never fear it so that we would never be alone or on our own because the one on the throne calls us his own. We need the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not something that's made up, not a five-minute-old life philosophy that promises to fix me. Like my addicted friend, we need real delivering, sobering, keeping power, not some cliche platitude, not some talk of a better attitude. We need the power that raised the dead, made sure thousands were fed, and meant what he said. Your name is Jesus, only you can deliver us. And the congregation said, the African pastor knows well. The African pastor knows well that the answer is the gospel. How does one stand by and observe people starving? It's absurd. His church needs the church. His people need help from God's people. But are they aware over there? Do they care? Will they share? Your name is Jesus. You and your people can save us. And the congregation said, like the church planner, we need to remember what we are after, the soul salvation, the marriage restorations, the family reconciliations, the city's reclamations from all the violence and devastations. He, like we, must aim the promises to claim, the principles to proclaim, the divine person that came and give glory to your name. Your name is Jesus. Only you can change us. And the congregation said, 
What we need is more than a change in behavior. What we need to be is transformed by the Savior. We need to be humbled. The mission we fumbled. May our egos be crumbled. Lord, if we pray at your feet, our worries lay. Will you save the day? Will you heal our land? Take us by the hand. Help us bring hope and turn others to you. If we acknowledge you, will you help us do all that you've called us to? Lord, we call out to you. Make us true. Lord, we call out your name. May we never be the same. Your name is Jesus. You alone can hear us. Lord, no one but you, King, Savior, Friend, it's you. Hope, healing, and heaven, it all comes from you. Faith, forgiveness, and freedom, they are all in you. You, Lord, it's all about you. It has to be. Nothing else can make us free. It was you that died on the tree. No one but you. Now let it be you, Lord, and only you and the congregation said. Lord, we humbly pray and stand before you today and know that you, only you, can pierce our callous soul, our cynical outlook, Lord. God, only you can break through and give us real hope, real love, unconditional love for you and for others. Only you can heal the divides among people, Lord God. Only you can bring the provision that is needed. Only you can keep my friend who's in the room today sober for one more day, Lord God, and restore him and heal him and lift him up. Only you, Lord God. Only you, Lord God, can heal the broken marriages that are here today. Lord, only you can bring back the wayward children that are found find themselves in some far-off land, whether geographically or philosophically. Lord, you can bring them back. You can heal their mind. You can heal their heart. You can redeem them, Lord God. Lord, only you can bring hope to a nation that is so divided. Lord God, we stand here today not just giving some kind of, some words, Lord God. We are here with a heartfelt conviction that we need you. And it needs to start with each of us. And so today, Lord God, these words we sing, these words we pray, not just today, but this week. 
Let us depend on you. Let us be aware of your presence. Let us be committed to you as the only hope of the world, more than ever. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week. We hope you enjoyed this message. And remember, we also have live outdoor services underneath our tent at Saturdays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at 9 a.m. You can always join us online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages to hear these messages in real time.